Remember how last time I said we were going to gaze into a crystal ball together and try to conjure up Butte's future? Well, I couldn't get my hands on an actual crystal ball, but luckily I was able to find Alice Deshay. I'm from Butte and I have a part-time job where I help people with disabilities learn to live as independently as possible with Montana Independent Living Project. And I'm also a psychic healer. Alice is petite, with big glasses and a calm presence, and lives in a sunny house painted in warm, southwestern tones. I sought her out because I'm approaching a big fork in the road in my own life. I don't know what's going to happen, and like most humans, I have a really hard time with uncertainty. So I figured some extra guidance from the spirit realm couldn't hurt. During healing sessions, Alice closes the drapes, gathers crystals and her shih tzu, puts on some new agey music, says a prayer, and then waits until she goes into a trance. Nora, you have entered the healing chamber. And symbols start to appear. And you are wearing Roman garb, sandals. I somehow wasn't surprised to find out that in past lives, I was a straight-up gladiator. I'm asking for the belief system attached to that trauma. I am only strong in battle. I'm pulling that out. Honestly, it was a real relief to have her permission to finally stop doing battle and learn that from here on out, I'm going to experience a shift towards a gentler, more peaceful existence. All this old energy is falling off from you. Your warrior garb is falling off. It's falling off like like scales fall off. Okay? And underneath is this beautiful new skin that you're going to be wearing. After our session, it occurred to me that Butte's fate is pretty up in the air, too. If everything in its new Superfund deal goes according to plan, the EPA claims the city could be deleted from the national priorities list as soon as 2024, which means after three decades, this community has a chance to reinvent itself, to shed its Superfund skin and some of the old beliefs and traumas attached to it. After these last few years living and reporting in Butte, I'm still trying to figure out what its future might hold. Was it too woo-woo to think that maybe Alice could help? It was not. I've learned a lot about Butte by the work that I do on her. Because I just work on her as if she were, you know, a soul. She's a soul. For someone whose gift is seeing things in terms of symbols and energies, Butte is a vortex. Alice says all the metals here, they're just a manifestation of this super condensed energy. I've always thought about copper. Why copper? Well, all the copper that we got out of this this physical land was physically used to, to bring light to this entire planet. That's so symbolic that that copper lit up the world. But she's quick to point out that back in Butte's heyday, there was a lot of darkness present too. And you had mine owners that were using men to bring up their their treasures and you know they would die and they get hurt and they you know they weren't treated well that greed is very dark alice believes butte will become a source of light again 
But this time, it will be spiritual, not physical. She told me that all kinds of light workers are already finding their way here. People who know how to use the energy for good and will transform the city and what it represents. I think that we will see a time when this land will be reclaimed and healed. We may not have the technology now or the spiritual ability now, but as we spiritually heal this land, then physically it's got, it's got to heal and we will find the avenues we need to, to heal it, totally transform it. And I see that. It may be a hundred years down the line, but I see a time where she's going to be healed. And Alice says all the vibrancy Butte used to have, it's not lost and gone forever. Eventually, we'll have abundance here once more. It's just not going to be based on greed. I'm Nora Sachs. Welcome to Richest Hill, a podcast about the past, present, and future of one of America's most notorious Superfund sites from Montana Public Radio. Richest Hill is supported by Sierra Nevada Brewing Company, family-owned, operated, and argued over since 1980, proud supporter of independent thought, whether it's online, over the air, or in a bottle. More at sierranevada.com. Right after talking to a psychic about my own path and buttes, I felt comforted. It felt good to let someone else take the wheel for a while, you know? But that comfort turned out to be temporary. Soon, those vague answers about the future only gave birth to more questions. It got me wondering, is it really possible for a town that was built on extraction to experience a complete paradigm shift towards reclamation and renewal? What does moving on from a toxic mess of this magnitude even mean? And what could Butte stand for in a post-Superfund world? After talking with folks that have spent their lives here, countless scientists and Superfund experts, miners and environmental activists, I thought I would have figured that out. That Butte would be a butterfly I could just pin neatly under glass. But honestly, the more I get to know this place, the more mysterious it becomes and the story only longer and more complicated. Still, it's human nature to try and know the unknowable, to divine our destiny. So today, in this final chapter of Richest Hill, we're going to spend some time searching for more clues in the past and present and looking over the horizon. This is episode 10. We wear Butte proudly on our skin. That's the merry sound of life-sized Tonka trucks hauling load after load of century-old toxic mine waste away from the Silver Bow Creek corridor that carves through the center of Butte. And pretty soon, that's likely to be a constant hum around here, thanks to the city's new $150 million Superfund settlement. In the short term, this cleanup deal is going to be a bump for Butte economically especially for the environmental engineers and construction companies that will be carrying out all of the extensive design and remediation work guaranteed in it. But it's not just a jackpot for them. According to a 2009 study by the Montana Department of Labor and Industry, every $1 million spent on this kind of work generates more than $2.5 million in overall economic activity and more than 30 jobs. But what happens when the Superfund boom is over? What comes next? 
Tuesday. To get at those juicier, more nebulous questions, it felt only right to turn to a few of Butte's most esteemed matriarchs, a pair of wise women who just happened to be related. Yeah, so Julia was telling me that you have some mother-daughter rituals. So can you just tell me a little bit about how you usually spend time together here? Well, we drink a lot of wine. We eat. We cook. Yeah. We do a little fighting. (laughs) (laughs) That's Ellen Crane. She's in her 60s, and true to form, we're standing in her cozy kitchen in Uptown Butte while she uncorks a bottle of wine, and her daughter Julia, who's in her late 30s, spoons up a culinary family heirloom. Goop. It has anchovies and blue cheese. Blue cheese and um, cream cheese and cream. Wow. And it has whiskey in it. What? Yeah. So I like to party, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So Julia will stir. Yeah, but it's like the same-ish recipe. It's not just a general term for dip. No, it's it's definitely like like a recipe. It's a recipe from our family goop. And it is delicious. Their great aunt Nellie really knew what she was doing. But Ellen is not just the keeper of antique dip recipes. She's the director of the Butte Archives, has been for 30 years. We are the keeper of the documents. We are the keeper of the stories. And we tell those stories. Yeah, we do. We ensure that those stories get out there because it's fascinating. Julia, on the other hand, also works for the county, but in the Superfund program as a planner. With Ellen's focus on preserving Butte's past and Julia busy mapping out the future, I told them I thought of them as opposites, a sort of intergenerational yin and yang, if you will. I didn't think about it that way at all. No. I don't, I guess I never have seen being the director of the archives as a um, backwards or as someone who can't see forward because, you know, I look at relevance, history as a guide. Ellen says if you understand what happened before, then... Hopefully, you will not continue to make the same errors. In the present, both Crane women wanted to make it crystal clear that Superfund was not a mistake, and they believe that overall, the process has worked really well for Butte. It has made the biggest investment in our community. It has changed our culture. It has changed our aesthetic. It has paid people well to solve the problem. It is the single most important thing that has happened to us in more than half a century. I mentioned that I've heard lots of EPA leaders and local officials dwell on the stigma that comes with being a federally designated contaminated site, and therefore how crucial it is to get Butte deleted from the official Superfund list ASAP. Julia says if you're from here, the stigma is real. But it becomes almost a self-fulfilling prophecy if you can't move away from how, about talking about those negatives that are associated with that stigma. In her view, the community needs to worry less about the stigma and the delisting date and accentuate the positive, all the successes that have happened here because of the cleanup. You see fish in Silverbow Creek now. When my mom was a child, that was a dead stream. And I think communicating those those achievements is just as much the story of Superfund as getting rid of the moniker. She contends that even in the last few years, with a final cleanup deal on the table, folks here have already been feeling more optimistic. Ellen agrees that there's a lot of hope around this. But, you know, change never happens quickly. 
And I think, you know, over the next five years, maybe there will be a shift. After all, Superfund isn't the only thing about Butte that's often feared or misunderstood. You can add mining and the Berkeley pit, the 50 billion gallon toxic lake, to that list. And they're not going anywhere. We need these things explained in a way that people can understand that isn't terrifying. People then start learning and it's easier to get people to invest and come in. But I think it will take another 10, 15 years for major changes to come and what that will bring in the long run. Most folks I've talked to agree that in the long run, Butte isn't going to be just one thing. Yes, we have a working copper mine, which we're going to visit post-haste. But that doesn't mean Butte is the mining city of yore, when everyone's lives revolved around underground mining. Still, the city grew up around the mines, and Ellen says our landscape is so married to the industry. We will always be a mining place. But I think we have a much more diverse economy today than we've had Mm. ever, ever. So now Butte, like lots of other post-industrial American cities, has this opening, another chance to determine what it wants to be without having one ultra-powerful company or a bureaucratic federal hazardous waste cleanup program calling the shots. Thinking about what it's going to be like when my daughter is my age is something that really excites me because there is nothing but potential in front of us. Julia has a three-year-old, and she's spent a lot of time studying and thinking about exactly what that potential might be. Will Butte, with its artists, warehouses, and cheapish rent, become the Brooklyn of the Rockies, as some suggest? Nah, she sees more in common with the second biggest city in the Keystone State. And I think a lot of people have said this, but Butte is like the Pittsburgh of the West. Pittsburgh, which survived the deindustrialization of steel and other heavy industries, has in recent decades reoriented its compass towards health and education, technology and innovation. And you have all of this crazy, awesome stuff that's happening. Julia says those sectors are growing here, too, and there are lots of synergies between them. There's a real potential there to create this cluster that could really be a rebirth for Butte that is, I think, in its very nature, so similar to the type of innovation that was happening in the mining industry here in the 1890s and the 1900s. Ellen feels much the same way, that what really separates Butte from the pack is that this is a city of problem solvers, always has been. Just for one example, when early miners realized nearby water sources were going to be too polluted to drink, they found a way to pipe clean water nearly 30 miles all the way across the Continental Divide. We have done things here that have not happened in other places, and I think that we could really build on that, that whole innovation, that whole problem solving. We are here to solve the problem. We are not here to whine or complain <laughs> or become paralyzed because there's a problem. We are here to solve it. Ellen believes that Butte can leverage that ballsy, can-do attitude and all of its complicated social and environmental challenges to become a great classroom. She says already, people from post-industrial cities the world over are traveling here to study and learn from Butte's experiences. They want to know all about how to help workers adapt to changing industries, how to mine responsibly, how to clean up environmental contamination, What are the best ways to do this? How do you deal with your people who are living in the middle of it? Mm -hmm. 
And I think these are all things that no one has stood back and said, oh, we did that wrong, we did this right. We're still looking for a good solution for this other thing. And I think we can teach those things. Personally, I love this idea of Butte becoming a global classroom, a hub of research and innovation. It fuels my own imagination much more than any other vision for the city's future I've encountered so far. So we're going to explore it further in the second half of this episode. Contrary to some dire warnings issued in the 1980s, Butte isn't withering away. Right now, Butte's population hovers around 35,000, but it's been increasing at a rate of around 2-3% to in recent years. Yes, that's slow compared to nearby Bozeman and Missoula, but the coronavirus pandemic has spurred new interests in Montana cities from out-of-staters, Butte included. Whatever changes are coming down the pike for the next generation, Julia says the city needs to be strategic to make sure that as it grows and evolves, that it doesn't lose its, well, butteness. What does that mean? The answers I've gotten seem to orbit around this feeling that Butte is a real place. A place for people who want the truth. A place where people have gone all in. And a place people choose deliberately, not in spite of its complexities, but because of them. We wear Butte proudly on our skin. And if you look in the faces of people from this community, you see all of that. They carry with them the legacies of who they were, and they carry with them the ambition and the desire to be who they always wanted to be. There's this Jewish proverb I like that goes, I ask not for a lighter burden, but for broader shoulders. And whether that burden is a mind closure, a Superfund designation, or COVID-19, Ellen convinced me that Butte is a place that can shoulder any load. And that is inspiring as hell. We are a people who can guide people on how to live better lives, I think, in spite of hardships. Bad things happen all the time. And we are living in a very weird, unprecedented time. But we know that it will get better. And we know that we will make all of these adjustments to be together again. I could have spent all night drinking wine and eating goop with mother-daughter duo Ellen and Julia Crane, dreaming up the many shapes that Butte's post-Superfund future could take. But whatever shape it does end up taking... It's going to include hard rock mining, because what makes Butte really different from a lot of Superfund communities is that here, the industry is not just a dilemma of our past. It's in full swing, right now, right next door. The mining that's still going on, it impacts more than 5,000 acres, or almost 8 square miles of the landscape. And it's not exactly hidden. The lower half of a mountain is missing, and there's an endless sea of beige mine dumps girdling another open pit just next to the defunct Berkeley. In a sense, though, mining has always been there for Butte. It's why Butte exists. And plenty of people want that tradition to continue, even if this is no longer the richest hill on earth. Still, if any place knows that mining is at once a force of creation and destruction, it's this one. So what does mining mean for Butte's economy and environment now? And what's changed? To get into that... It's time to enter the belly of the beast. This is the Continental Pit. 
Mark Thompson and I are standing on the rim of Butte's active open pit copper mine, looking down into the endless tiers of gray, brown, and reddish earth that have been chomped away. Mark's the VP of Environmental Affairs for Montana Resources, the company that runs the mine. He looks like a linebacker, has worked at mines around the U.S., and is a pro at giving Mining 101 tours of MR's sprawling operation. We hop into his SUV to take a closer look. For, for a copper mine, open pit copper mine, uh, Continental is uh, probably on the small end of medium, maybe even the, the larger end of small. <laughs> this which, is, which one is it? <laughs> this is not a very big mine compared to a lot of the big copper mines in the world like Bingham Canyon and Salt Lake City, Chukicamata, Southern Peru Copper, Grossberg Mine in Indonesia. Those things are monsters. You know, we're, we're on a good day, we'll move 100,000 tons. Those mines will push a million tons a day. That's 100,000 tons of rock about half of which ends up being ore, the stuff that will still make the company a profit after it's mined and milled, 24-7. Coming behind you, 896. for you. Okay, thanks. That's Mark making sure we don't get pancaked by a hulking vehicle that makes our Chevy Suburban feel positively Lilliputian, a 240-ton haul truck schlepping ore. As we make our way down into the bottom of the pit, Thompson tells me there's a lot more to mining than just digging a big hole in the ground. The goal is to make big rocks into little rocks. Now, ultimately, what we're trying to do is we're trying to separate those mineral particles from non-mineral particles. That involves first sampling, drilling, and blasting the rock. Then towering electric shovels swoop and scoop the shot rock into the beds of waiting haul trucks in a slow-motion, mechanical waltz. Oh, I could, I could sit here and watch shovels load trucks all day long. It's just, when a good operator's running a shovel, there's just nothing, it's almost like a ballet. If it's waste rock, it gets carted off to the tailings pond. If it makes the cutoff grade for ore, it's sent through a series of crushing and milling facilities where chunks of earth can go from, you know, the size of a Volkswagen to, you know, dust. Add water, and you now have a nice wet slurry, which gets pumped through the concentrator. Eventually, the metals get extracted and high-grade copper and molybdenum concentrates are dried, bagged, and shipped far away for further refining. And from there, you can make wire, you can make pipe, you can make circuit boards, you can make all the things you make out of copper. And so what happens to it after the smelter, we don't know. We just, we just get it to the smelter, and then we're, we're out of that loop. Running a modern copper mine like this one requires lots of heavy equipment and cavernous processing plants, but not very many people, I realize. In our three-hour tour, we see just a handful of humans, mostly perched up high in the cabs of big machines or pressing buttons in control rooms. Still, Mark says he and his colleagues take pride in actually making something. I like working in a mine because I know I add value. 
to this, I add value to Butte, I add value to Montana, and I add value to the United, to the United States. Tangible, real value. Since we're in Butte, the once upon a time Gibraltar of labor unionism, I think it's worth mentioning that Montana Resources is owned by now billionaire Dennis Washington, who salvaged the mine from Atlantic Richfield back in 1985 and reopened it union-free. MR now employs around 370 people, and it's a major driver of Butte's economy, contributing approximately 20% of the county's tax base. Current estimates are that the mine will operate for 35 to 40 more years, depending on the market for copper in Mali. So that's the creation side of open pit mining in Butte. It generates metals that we all use, a few hundred well-paying jobs, and wealth that benefits the region's economy for the time being. But what about the mass destruction that's happening simultaneously? Is Butte just digging itself a deeper environmental hole? Going to experience Berkeley Pit deja vu all over again? MR's environmental manager, Mark Thompson, argues no way. So, I mean, right off the bat, the Continental, the Continental Pit is just a much, much cleaner pit. Even though they're side by side, the Continental Fault actually runs right between the two pits, so they have entirely different geologic origin stories. Mark says that's why, compared to the Berkeley, the ore body in the Continental Pit has fewer impurities, like lead and arsenic, in it. And it's not destined to have the same mega water pollution problems because, one, it's not connected to the thousands of miles of flooded underground mine workings burrowing below the city of Butte. And two, that fault line, it also serves as the hydraulic barrier between the Berkeley Pit and the Continental Pit. That's why this can be lower than the Berkeley Pit, and the Berkeley Pit water doesn't flow this way. There are regulatory differences between the open pit mines, too, because for most of the 19th and 20th centuries, the hard rock mining industry was completely unregulated. It was like a wild stallion, allowed to run roughshod over Montana's environment in pursuit of profit. That's how we ended up with perpetual environmental disasters like the Berkeley Pit. In that case, it was too late. The horse was already out of the barn. But in the 1970s, the feds and the state began to tighten the reins, and Montana passed laws intended to prevent mining companies from making huge new toxic messes and just walking away from them. Nowadays, in order to get an operating permit, mining companies are legally required to plan for the site's closure and set aside money to reclaim it. I mean, really and truly, from a pit that was originally started in 1952 to an operating mine in 2018, when I visited. It's, it, there really is no comparison. I mean, there's, there's little comparison to a, a mine operating today than a mine that was operating 20 years ago. Environmental advocates and independent consultants I've talked to say that while Montana's mining regulations have improved over time, they're still not where they need to be. And they can list off a slew of projects that continue to have water pollution, bonding, and compliance issues. Mark says here at MR, though, there's a whole other type of guarantee that a monumental mess won't be left in taxpayers' laps. Technically, the entire mining area is also its own Superfund unit. It's just inactive right now, meaning while it's operating, the state's in charge. But if there are any problems once it shuts down, the federal government can exercise its full authority under Superfund to get it cleaned up and go after any companies or parties they deem responsible. Montana Resources and Buter are 
different than any other mine in the state because of the Superfund overlay, which adds just this extra layer of certainty for reclamation. Obviously, Mark gets paid to soothe any fears the public might have about environmental risks. From what I can tell, though, as far as mining companies go, Montana Resources has a solid reputation. And overall, I do think there are more safeguards in the industry than there used to be. Still, there's a hefty environmental price to pay. Some locals who live directly across from the concentrator complain frequently of dust pollution in their neighborhood. And copper mining inevitably produces vast quantities of waste, all of which needs to be stored somewhere, permanently. In Butte, that's an enormous earthen prison nesting above the Berkeley pit. We're on the crest of the dam right now. Up here at the top, the tailings dam is more than 700 feet tall and 400 feet wide. As we walk out onto what looks like a gray sandy beach bordering a steely blue lake, but is actually decades worth of watered down old mine tailings, Mark says, People have a lot, you know, and rightfully so, people have a lot of concerns about the dam, but you saw how thick the dam is up there. Uh, You know, after these tailings are deposited like this, you could take the embankment and remove it. And these things are going to sit right here. They're not going to go anywhere. According to MR, the dam is designed to withstand a 6.5 magnitude earthquake. And a state geologist told me the probability of an earthquake that big happening in the foreseeable future, like five to 10,000 years, is very low. So he's not too worried about it. But he also said that the Continental Fault hasn't been studied in enough detail to know for sure. So my point is, there's some big unknowns. And even if the company plays by all the rules, it's not like any of this is going away. At the end of the mine's life, MR will have to give all 5,000 acres a serious makeover. Basically, the plan is for everything but the high walls of the Continental Pit to be flattened out, capped, and revegetated. So it'll look less like a colony of Pleistocene-era giant beavers, not a crater in the East Ridge. But the incision will be here for eternity. Many of these scars will never fully heal. In Mark's experience, the realities of mining are hard for a lot of people to accept. They don't connect the dots between the objects and conveniences they love and their origin source. They look at Butte or they look at mining and they say, oh man, this is, this is a, a, a bad industry, you know? I've been called an earth hater, you know? And it's like, why don't you take off that gold wedding ring and that cell phone and that belt buckle and walk here and then you can talk about who hates the earth more. I asked him if the trade-offs and the negative impacts, in the end, are they worth it? Well, I think as a society, we've said they are. We want, we want, we want, and this is how you get it. After staring at two open pit mines every day, one dead, one very much alive, I had hoped I would feel less tension around this issue, but now it's always simmering, just under the surface. If we're going to mine for metals, it probably makes sense to keep doing it in Butte, because the area is already so industrialized. However, I don't buy the argument that just because we all use phones or take hot showers means we're 100% okay with the consequences. Even here, 
where the extraction of natural resources is so raw and so explicit, there's no umbilical cord from the continental pit to my smartphone. The copper being mined next door is just one strand in a globalized web of production and consumption that's obscured on purpose. So no one has ever asked me if I would choose my iPhone over Rampart Mountain because that choice doesn't really exist. Our society is dependent on mining, and we're all complicit. Where I've landed is that maybe Butte is a place where we can be more honest about the trade-offs and learn something from living with these scars. Let's talk about that after the break. Richest Hill is supported by Sierra Nevada Brewing Company, family owned, operated, and argued over since 1980. Proud supporter of independent thought, whether it's online, over the air, or in a bottle. More at sierranevada.com. Hey everybody, I'm Nick Mott, producer at Richest Hill. There's one thing you can do for us at MTPR is we look forward to future podcasts. We need to hear from you about what you learn from Richest Hill. Go to our website at buttepodcast.org for a five-minute anonymous survey and share your feedback with us. Thanks so much. Take the children to the mountains. Let their hearts like snow geese soar. Remember Hope for Snow Geese? That Irish-style wake for all the migrating birds that died in the Berkeley pit a few years ago? Where very few have rotten before. At that event, educator Raylan Brandle talked about what happens when she teaches local school kids about all the damage done to Butte's environment. I'm going to tell you that middle schoolers cry when you tell them this story. What's way more empowering is the message that now we know better and can do better. That's the kind of legacy we need to start living, is that, yes, Butte has an environmental disaster, but we know how to clean it up. Ever since then, I've kept turning that rock over in my mind. And after several years of examining the situation with a magnifying glass, I'm not sure Butte can claim that we do know how to clean this up, because I think that's a setup. To paraphrase one Superfund expert, when it comes to the environmental abuse caused by historic mining, the genie is out of the bottle, and it's never going back in. So clean means something altogether different here. That's why everywhere you look, at the Berkeley Pit, at the constant groundwater and stormwater treatment, at the capped mine dumps on the hill, you see all of these festering threats that will just have to be neutralized and managed, more or less forever. What I do think is that it's possible to parlay some of these environmental vulnerabilities into strengths. And that Butte, to echo Alice, our friendly neighborhood psychic, could play a role in developing some kind of technology that we can use in, in healing Butte, and then we can use that to heal the world. Maybe because I used to be a super crunchy organic farmer, I relate to the avant gardeners the best. The ones for whom all of Butte is a living laboratory. It's a warm September afternoon, and a squad of restoration ecology students are fanning out across an out-of-the-way slope of the Butte Hill. 
They're hunched over, drilling skinny holes into the topsoil, then tenderly pressing a native tree or shrub seedling into each one and wishing it good luck. Hi, Nora. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? Just as their fearless leader, Professor Robert Powell, has instructed. You can see Mount Nash, you can see Mount Mahogany, you can see rabbit brush, you can see sagebrush, you can see creeping junipers. I'm just walking around. There is antelope bitter brush that are all parts of the native systems here. Robert is 44, has a boyish enthusiasm and bowl cut, hails from an ancient mining town in Hungary, and is now the director of the restoration program at Montana Tech in Butte. As a lifelong lover and scholar of flora, especially invasive plants and disturbed plant communities. There's just seven heaven for me here, because all those interactions, in a way, are happening in the front of my eyes. In the last few years, under Robert's expert tutelage, students, volunteers, and county partners have planted thousands of native plants in research plots all over the Butte Hill. They're going to all this trouble to diversify the hillside by hand and by trowel, because even though it looks healthy and is already wearing a green grassy frock, it's got erosion problems, serious ones. Remember, underneath this vegetation petticoat lurks umpteen piles of mine waste. So early on in the Superfund cleanup, in order to protect the public, engineers seeded a handful of grass species targeted at reclaiming the hill. And their strategy worked. They came in hard and fast and sealed hundreds of acres of hazardous waste under thick grass and soil caps. The catch? The grass is an exotic grass. It means that it comes from another continent and it actually has no natural enemies. That makes it kind of a super plant in a way because there is nothing that really could harm it. The Eurasian grasses grew so aggressively, there was no way native species could compete. Over time though, the exotic grasses, which are now waist high, have gotten old and thin, and many caps have begun to fail. In a sense, the man-made system is stuck like a fly in amber. And if we don't help that system with the restoration, I would say it just actually remains in a, this stuck alternative stage where there's no way really out. So now Dr. Pal is trying to give nature a jump start, hoping the native seedlings and seeds they plant, a local mix called Pal 2016, named after him, of course, will spread and eventually create a diverse, dynamic, self-sustaining ecosystem. One that might be designed by humans, but obeys nature's rules. The goal isn't to turn the clock back to the pre-mining era. Today we have another approach which is called the moving target approach, where we, instead of turning back into the past, we are trying to project where does the environment that was here in the past would have evolved today or in the future without the disturbance happening. And the truth is, we don't know how to do this yet. Robert says while the idea of ecological restoration is not new, the science itself is quite young. Not only that, Butte with its urban setting, high desert climate, and waste-in-place remedy is unique. A novel ecosystem that doesn't really exist anywhere else. The more we talked, the more I realized that maybe this whole moving target approach could be useful far beyond botany. As we grapple with a changing climate and a polarized country, we can look to the past for clues, but we need to focus on designing the world we want to see, one that makes sense here, now. With so much trial and error baked in, Robert says his job is exciting, but 
in a way is dangerous too because you can fail if if something wouldn't work well you know you designed it you told us to do it that way so in a way i feel like it's also responsibility there are signs dr powell's methods to restore native habitat in butte are working we stop by a different test plot and come across a sweetly pungent silvery green sagebrush it's one of his favorite plants one of the first he encountered in the united states you know, I took a leaf off and I smelled it, and that smell to me still comes back as, you know, my first experience. That smelled like America. It smelled now he like gets to work with prairie. sagebrush a lot. So much, it's become an old friend, and kind of his baby, too. His team planted this particular specimen as a tiny seedling, maybe four inches tall. Started up, at least, just, it was this. That's wild. In, uh, in 2016, and now it's actually almost up to my uh, tie. Exactly. Just four and, years. Four and it's seasons. flowering, bringing seeds, and that's our aim. At the site of this sturdy, wild sagebrush making its way in this harsh world, thriving on a capped mine dump, I couldn't help but feed off of some of Robert's passion and, yes, hope. But as we continued checking in on his botanical babies, I got in my head again, thinking about all the harm we're currently doing to our planet at a breakneck speed. Considering how much time and effort it will likely take to solve all the old problems here, let alone any new ones, I asked Robert if he thought it was possible to ever heal these kinds of scars. Whether it, we can heal the whole thing or not, whether we can restore the whole thing or not, I, I don't think so. The damage is just probably greater. But that doesn't mean he's just out here rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. Robert says keep in mind that in Butte, we're dealing with roughly 100 years of crazy pollution and just 30 years of trying to fix it. We're understanding more about restoration every day, and slowly, ecological complexity is returning. For an area that used to be barren and inhospitable to wildlife, there are an awful lot of deer and foxes now roaming the hills. Plus, since there's no recipe for how to do this right, for scientists like Dr. Powell, Butte is going to be the gift that keeps on giving, because there are always going to be more questions to try and answer. Really intriguing ones, like, can certain species survive if they're planted right into mine waste? And what kinds of plants might be able to clean up metals all by themselves? Just as some native plants can be environmental pioneers, so can people. And the point is, Butte is an ideal habitat for them, for free thinkers and risk takers who aren't afraid to tackle our formidable ecological challenges head on, no matter the odds. As Butte starts to slough off its tough, worn-out old Superfund skin, maybe this one will grow in its place. We are learning from our failures, and we need to put out those failures and successes. And therefore, we could be, I like to use this nice quote, trailblazers in, in this field. And that could be a really good rule model, I believe, for us here, you know, in our nearby area, nationwide, and also globally. But today, outside with his class, Robert just wants to give one more sagebrush a happy home. Right now. Yeah, he's almost done. Robert, you can do whatever you want. I know, this is the last plant I'm going to put in. Okay. Everybody else, finish up your plant. Robert's just a little excited. Yeah. He is. Just one more. One more. One Mom. More. And the rest of us are just going to leave him behind.
I figure that as the city begins to form this new, softer skin, we're going to need a new crop of Bushans who want to cultivate that kind of growth. A little further down the hill, there happens to be another plant guy with just as green a thumb, but whose real superpower is gardening people. I'm across from a mine yard, following Norm Daniil through a gap in a deer fence and into what feels like a secret garden hidden in plain sight. Uh, between the service berries, we have two different kinds of native penstemon. Uh, these are done blooming and they're starting to set seed, but one is an electric sky blue. It's July, and though the rest of the hill glows a monochrome green, in here, on top of a former mine dump, sprouts a rainbow of native trees, shrubs, and wildflowers, including a delicate magenta blossom, which, thanks to Norm, is now the city of Butte's official flower. This is Clarkia pulcala. Pulcala in Latin means beautiful or pretty, from which we get the English word pulchritude, mm. bosomy. Norm, who's 73 now, has degrees in philosophy and theology, and the weathered face and soil-encrusted fingernails of someone who is gardening in their soul. As president of Butte's Garden Club, he was taking care of another garden uptown when he noticed that some aspen seedlings were thriving in just a thin layer of soil and actually growing right around the toxins buried below. Having learned that, I thought, ah, I know the perfect tree to reestablish a native landscape. So a few years ago, he got a grant from the state's Superfund settlement to start his own native garden project. And now, Butte has its very own Johnny Appleseed. But in place of wild apples, Norm plants aspens, those slender white trees trembling with light green heart-shaped leaves. More than 6,000 of them now grow in dense, cool groves on this patch of the hillside. And just like Johnny Appleseed loved sharing the fruits of his labors, Norm has no intention of keeping this little Eden to himself. When everything is mature, his ultimate vision is to turn these six acres into a gorgeous public park, one you could pay a few bucks to wander and enjoy. Something like this all over the hill would really tell the story of how Butte moved from the most environmentally ravaged city in North America to being an astonishingly re nude environment. While some have questioned the sustainability of Norm's experiment, given the quantities of water, labor, and money being poured into it, I think it is a model of stewardship. Because deep down, most of his work is actually about teaching the next generation how to repair and take care of their own backyard. Halfway through my visit, we bump into his husky, Angel. And now these are the other angels. And um, um, How's it these going? are amazing, amazing. I would say guys, they're just amazing spirits. How's it yeah. going? I'm Nora. Saxon. Isaiah. Isaiah, Saxon, what was your name? Nolan. Nolan, nice Nolan to meet you. Yeah. Isaiah, Nolan, Saxon, and Nolan just graduated from high school and are Norm's hired help. So, what are you guys up to today? Well, today we were just pulling some weeds over here in Third Acre, pulling some cheat grass and those little oat seed weeds. Even though it's the middle of a long, hot work day, the boys are grinning and require zero prompting to tell me how much they love their summer job. Apparently, all the hours they've spent weeding and watering and tending the nursery with Norm have left quite an impression. Whenever I go out like golfing or fishing, doing anything now, I'll look at something and know what it is and I'll be like, oh, that's, that's cool. We have these in 
up at our work and now they're all out here in the mountains it's pretty cool i never used to pay attention to plants before i worked here that's for sure but working in this garden hasn't only changed how isaiah saxon and nolan view the plant kingdom it's profoundly altered how these teenagers regard where they're from i just think like the main thing i learned from this is like just the amount of opportunity that butte has in general because like if you look at butte it's kind of dusty like there's just not a lot of there's not a lot of like life. color. Yeah, exactly. Like this is life. Like this is literally life. Like it, you can feel the energy when you come into this place. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. It just it's like just brings a different mood. It brings a different mood. So like when you look around Butte and you see everything that's like dead and all this ugly grass and stuff, and you like you think that it actually has potential. Like it really does have a lot of potential. If it was up to these guys, there would be a garden project like this one next to each mine. Instead of more businesses in Butte, they want to see real growth. You know, the kind rooted in the soil. I mean, I'm not throwing no shade, but Norm's one of the coolest old dudes I met. Most of them, most of them are like not on board with the plants, not on board with seeing the future. But the thing is, it's our future. It's not ours. Like we need to make, we need to be the one. Before Norm would let me leave his secret garden, he produced a pair of copper dousing rods. Everything has energy, he said. Rocks, people, plants. The rods help him detect energy fields. Okay, let's find out where the energy field is for the fireweed. He walked over to a tall, showy plant with violet spikes, held the dowsing rods parallel out in front of him, and then slowly backed up until they crossed a few feet away. Um, Now, I'm going to talk to the fireweed. Now, they don't understand English, but they'll get the idea, okay? You're a beautiful fireweed. We honor you. We care for you. We hope for your healthy growth. You're a beautiful plant that we love. It got three feet longer. Yeah. The point is, and the guys here too, I show them this early on in their employment. They understand this and very quickly they understand their relationship to the plants and to the environment here. And they they just breathe good energy upon these plants. And I think that's that's part of the the formula for the success of this landscape. We care. They know it. Spending time with these plant whisperers and all their protégés did a lot to calm my existential dread about what might be over the horizon for Butte. Because instead of hoping or wondering if this big a mess is ever or can ever be cleaned up, I've met so many people here who are just doing it. And I think we need way more of that energy anywhere we can get it. So I'd like to conclude our saga by offering a new interpretation of a classic mining city symbol with a little help from Butte's literary son, Edwin Dobb, and local Superfund guru, Joe Griffin. Visitors that come into Butte, there's two things, of course, they notice. One's the Berkeley pit in the mining landscape. And the other one is Our Lady of the Rockies on, on the ridge, the Madonna that sits on the ridge. And it's pretty prominent position up there. 
prominent is right. Bless us, our lady of the Rockies. He's talking about a 90-foot-tall, snow-white iron statue so huge, we can see her clearly on the mountaintop, all the way from Joe's front porch on the far side of town. At night, she's lit up, a glowing maternal figure, always standing vigil, 3,500 feet above the city. Legend has it that back in 1979, one man prayed that if his beloved wife beat cancer, he would build a life-size statue of the Virgin Mary in his yard. When she recovered, instead, a bunch of -of out-of-work miners in the National Guard helped erect this statue, piece by piece, on top of the Continental Divide, as a tribute to women everywhere. Oh, the people of Butte are proud now, they should be. Oh, I am so proud of these people of Butte. As Ed Dobb put it in a 2010 essay, The story Butte tells itself about the lady is that she gazed across the valley, looking over the weary city, the ravaged landscape, and said, this town needs help. Ever since the lights went on in late 1985, she's been seen as a protector, a kind of collective prayer for mercy. Ed died suddenly last year, so I asked Joe to read his words, because we both feel that when it comes to Butte, Ed was the philosopher-poet of our time. And... Not to be too cheesy, but I feel like for the past couple of years, you've kind of been like a beacon in the dark for me, too. (laughs) Well, I appreciate that, Nora. So Ed asked, where do we go from here? He suggests that maybe Butte doesn't need that same kind of protection, a guardian angel, anymore. There's a new story we can begin to tell. Instead of seeing Our Lady's outstretched arms and palms facing up as a gesture of comfort and solace to the people of Butte, it could be a gesture of invitation to the world beyond. Come, we need new blood, new energy, new ideas. The Lady S, a beacon, Butte's own Statue of Liberty, but let's call it the Statue of Liberation liberation from a past that we honor, certainly, and that we're damn lucky to have flowing through our veins, but a past that we have finally put to rest. Dobb says it's not so sacrilegious when you remember the Butte was built by immigrants. In its early days, it was famously a wide-open town, where people from all over the world and all walks of life came seeking their fate and their fortune. In my experience, Those who fall in love with this odd, broken, often forbidding place, those in whom Butte arouses passion and loyalty and a desire to stay, are exactly the newcomers, the new blood, the new erotic force we need most. Imagine the vitality and creativity that might flourish here were we to follow the example of the lady on the mountain, opening our arms to them adopting them, and making room for their children, thereby inaugurating a new era of wide openness. Perhaps this idea of a new generation of wide openness feels so vital to me and Joe because neither of us are from here, and on some level, we'll always be outsiders. I moved here two and a half years ago, and I've been thinking about Butte and my future and its future ever since. 
Honestly, I don't know yet if I'm going to be one of those newcomers who's in it for the long haul, who's gone all in. What I do know is that day after day, Butte has revealed to me a capacity for resilience in both its human and natural worlds that I didn't believe was actually possible until I saw flowers blooming on top of old mine dumps and elders rallying for a healthier tomorrow right in front of me. This place has given me so many gifts, but that might just be the richest reward of them all. Richest Hill is a production of Montana Public Radio. Nora Sachs is our host and reporter. I'm Nick Mott, our producer. Eric Whitney is our executive producer. Josh Burnham is our digital editor. Our theme music is by Dublin Gulch. Other original music composed and performed by Jonas Bonetta, Oren Pearson, and Crystal Fantasy. Special thanks to Alice Deshay, Julia and Ellen Crane, Mark Thompson, Montana Resources, Robert Powell, Montana Tech, Joe Griffin, Norm Deneal, Karen Burns, Lori Casey, Jim Kuypers, the Montana Department of Environmental Quality, the Environmental Protection Agency, the Montana Bureau of Mines and Geology, the Montana Environmental Information Center, Rebecca Carlin, Shanna Adams, Edwin Dobb, David T. Hansen, Sam Peltz, Clark Grant, KBMF LP Butte, and NPR Story Lab. There's one more thing you can do to help us as we look forward to future podcasts. We need to hear from you about what you learned from the show. Go to our website at buttepodcast.org for a five-minute anonymous survey and share your feedback with us. Thanks for listening. <laughs>